Welcome everyone to episode 86, Human Pig Chimera. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in, hanging by a thread. It's been a rough couple of weeks. I've been jamming and ramming to try and get the lab all closed up because I'm going to Hawaii in a couple of days. Say it again. Hawaii. Two days for 10 nights. I can't wait. All I can say is I hate you so much right now. <laughs> Don't hate. Don't hate. I'll get you in. Hey, we'll share. I'll put you on the Twitter. I'll get you on the Facebook. You'll, oh, you'll send, be vicariously living my experience. Yes, Don't worry. Send me some sunshine, some Hawaiian sun uh, in Portland, Oregon. No, oh my I cannot send you sunshine. I can send you pictures of me being a glutton, stuffing myself oh. with luau. And I'm going to be... A human pig chimera by the time I come back. <laughs> you, sure. you will be. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, everyone, let's get down to business. Let's get this done with so we can help Dalen get on vacation more quickly. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You'll be able to find all of our past episodes there and other great resources that we provide. And, of course, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, here at the Stem Cell Podcast, it is really, really important to us to deliver you content that is current as it's happening in the moment, right? At the end of January, a story was published in Cell describing for the first time a human pig chimera. And that story got a lot of mainstream press and is regarded as a very important study towards creating custom organs. Once we heard about this study, we knew that we had to have someone from that study on the show. And that's exactly what we have for you today. Dr. Jun Wu, first author on the study in Cell. And to allow us more time to discuss this really significant topic, we're not going to do our normal science roundup this week. So no other stories, only human pig chimera for you this week. We will resume our regular roundup next episode. But in the meantime, Daylin, what do you say? Are you ready to learn about the pig human chimera? Whoop, whoop. I'm ready. I can't wait. I've been waiting to have a guest on the show to talk about chimeras because they're awesome and they're freaky a little bit, but in a, in a good positive way. And there's a lot... I think to it in, in terms of like, you know, the lay understanding of science, I think it's something we can really get people excited about because it's relatable, but it, it draws you into some of the deep science, the history of chimeras, how important they are to developmental biology and the potential they have to revolutionize regenerative medicine. In this case, growing human organs in an animal. I mean, again, freaky, but really potential to have tremendous impact. Yeah, and your own perspective, you've had experience with some chimera research yeah, as well. I've so. messed around. I've yeah. messed around with some chimeras, and that makes me appreciate this work all the more because, yeah. you know, after 200 goes plus trying to get mouse human chimeras using human pluripotent stem cells, we ended with very, very little success. So I can't wait to, to see how Dr. Wu did it. Absolutely. So here we go, everyone. 
As always, our friends at Stem Cell Technologies are providing us with educational and engaging tools. And this week, they want to remind us to keep current with latest in the field with Connexon Science Newsletters, where thousands of researchers worldwide are subscribing and getting updated in the stem cell field. One of those newsletters is the mesenchymal cell news with two research sections. There's an in vivo and an in vitro section. Mm. Pick your own section. What do you like? Users can keep current with the latest advances as mesenchymal stem cells move toward clinical applications. And you can check this out. You can check it out at www.mesenchymalcellnews.com. Kiki, you're an in vivo girl. I know about you. You're all about in vivo. <laughs> in vivo, that's right. Get in there. I'm in vitro exclusively. You know, I'm on the outskirts. I'm whole animal. Whole animal. That's what I. You know, whole, whole animal. animal right. As long as it's not just one animal. You know, we can. As long as you can jam two animals together, we got a guy who's whole animal in here, and his name is Dr. Jun Wu. Can you please tell me about this guy? Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Jun Wu, a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Juan Carlos Ispisua Belmonte at the Salk Institute, and he obtained a PhD degree in 2008 from Genome Science and Technology, which is a joint program between the University of Tennessee and Oak Ridge National Lab. And then after working in the lab of Professor Martin Perra, the founding director of the Eli and Edith Broad Center for Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research at University of Southern California as a postdoctoral research associate for three years. Jun joined the Belmonte Lab in 2012, and today he's here to talk with us about his latest work, in which he's the first author published in Cell on human pig chimeras. Dr. Wu, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Dr. Wu, first things first, I embarrassed myself on last week's episode trying to get the name right. Can you please pronounce your mentor and uh, PI's name for us so that we can, you know, get that under our belt and, and refrain from insulting him or offending him in the future? Uh, it took me a while to get used to this, but his name is uh, Juan Carlos Ispusua Balmonte. Ipsua. Ispasua. Ispasua Belmonte. We've got it. All right. I'm hopeless. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Dr. Belmonte, if you'll forgive me. <laughs> okay. So we're going to dive right in. But to start, I don't know how many of our listeners actually know what chimeras are. So can you just explain what they are and why we are trying to use them as a research tool? So. Chimera, in scientific term, is basically an organism that contains cells from different species. And uh, in experimental settings, so we generate the chimera by making cells at the early, very early development. And hopefully, uh, in hope that we can see some of the cells from one species can integrate and survive and generate early tissues in a different species. Uh, so the reason why I use, uh, we use chimera, actually chimera, experiment has been done for many decades and many years. Uh, in the earlier days, um, uh, scientists tried to understand uh, the cell fate. Uh, for example, they try to understand uh, certain embryonic cells, what type of uh, tissues and cells they can generate. So what they did is they graft some of the cells into a developed embryo from another so they can distinguish by genomic genetic markers. So they can keep track of the cells and see what type of tissue and uh, what potential, what developmental potential of cells in the different species. And later on, I think uh, this um, improvement of embryo handling technologies, people try to mixing the cells from early development together in hope that uh, they can use the system to understand 
get more information about development uh, in the mammalian species. For example, General Sun uh, generated the first interspecies chimeras by mixing two very closely related rodent species, uh, which separate about very short evolutionary distance. And the live chimera in that case can be generated. But uh, the later people find out that in the more distant species is more difficult. For example, the rat and mice, uh, uh, in a way that they don't integrate well in early development. And uh, the chimera, resulted chimeras uh, contain very little cells, for example, from the, from the rat. But with the arrival of stem cells, um, because these type of cells have the potential that they can generate all the tissues, organs, and cells in our body, so there is the possibility that whether we can use the stem cell instead of mixing early embryonic cells or generating interspecies chimera, which actually uh, it worked. And in 2008, the first interspecies chimera using the stem cell was generated between two species. One of them is the common house mice, uh, the other one is the wood mice. And they were separated by about 11 many years in evolutionary is much longer than uh, the prior successful stories with interspecies chimera mixing early embryonic cells. So they injected uh, the wood mice yes cells at the time into a mouse. We were able to, to, to see that there is extensive contribution of the wood mice cells into the interspecies wood mice and mice chimeras. And some of the tissue contain even more than 40% of the cells. And later on, uh, using the same strategy, because the, uh, due to the arrival of the red embryonic stem cells, the genuine red embryonic stem cells, and researchers such as uh, Hiro Nakauchi started to experiment in whether we can uh, expand uh, the capability of you know, the evolution distance that generating interspecies came out using culture stem cells. So what he did was uh, the, he injected uh, the red proponent stem cells uh, either the isolated from early embryos or created by uh, a process or technology called induced proponent, uh, induced cell reprogramming. Basically, you you turn uh, any somatic cells, such as the skin or, or follicles, using a set of genes that can turn them back into embryonic-like cells. So using this proponent stem cells, Hiro Nakauchi and his colleagues were able to generate live, for the first time, live randomized interspecies chimeras. And they, they found, uh, uh, what they found was very surprising is that the interspecies chimera, when they use the red stem cells inside the mouth, actually look exactly like the mouth. The body size, organ size, uh, resemble a, a mouth. On the other way around, if they use the mouse embryonic stem cells or induced proponent stem cells, inject into the rat, actually they were generating a chimera that is more resemble a rat. That tells us that the maternal environment determining uh, the sort of species identity or some of the features associated with the species, for example, the organ size, body size, etc. Wow, uh, so Dr. Wu, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can we, that's fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. So embryonically derived chimeras that were allowed to, you know, have live birth, walking around that were, what percentage of chimerism like, was it, you know, the one that looked like a rat was mostly rat? Is that one other explanation that accounts for it? And was the lifespan of these animals normal? Were they fertile? How come I haven't seen this study? This is so amazing. Uh, yes, it, it was a very uh, amazing study at the time. That's one of the reasons that motivated me to getting this type of research. So at least between the rat and mice or the mice and wood mice, the chimera are alive, they are viable and they can live into adulthood. 
and they have a seem to have a normal lifespan. Actually, in this our current study, we generated a two-year-old randomized chimera, and they have a normal life, and we didn't observe any diseases in these chimeric animals, at least from the number of chimeras that we analyzed. And the red cells inside the mouse display the right aging markers, so suggesting that the, the cells in a completely different environment can survive for up to two years and core and compatible with the orgasmal physiology as well as the aging process. So that's very remarkable to me. And uh, with regard to the germline, I think even in our studies or the studies prior, we didn't observe the red stem cells contribute to the germline. But of course, we couldn't exclude that possibility because we know that uh, between rodents, the germ cell developments are quite compatible. People actually transplant uh, germline stem cells from the red species inside the mouse testis, and they were able to generate functional red sperm. Uh, but again, in this study, we didn't observe that. Can we walk a little bit through like the background for your study specifically, and what questions were you specifically looking to answer with what you did? Sure, yes. So the prior study to generate the interspecies chimera between red and mice, for example, the chimerism is often random. So in order to enrich the donor cells, for example, the red stem cells into a specific organ or tissue, there's a strategy called interspecies process complementation. So what it does is that instead of using a wild-type mouse host, the mouse host could come from a mutant strain that the mutant mice will not be able to generate a specific tissue or organs. So the donor cells, the donor red stem cells, because it has a perfect functional copy at a particular gene, they can sort of complement the development of the mouse and provide the chimera with an organ that is deficient in the whole species. But this technology requires a prior establishment of a mutant mouse embryos uh, that was normally done using the ESL-based approach. Basically, you perform gene editing using the cultured stem cells and using the stem cells to generate the animal, which takes about uh, one year to two years period of time. So with the advancement of gene editing tools, now we can modify the early development embryo uh, very efficiently. Basically, we can disable any genes in the early embryos so that we can make sure the recipient mouse host doesn't have the ability to generate the specific organs or tissues within 19 days. So that's amazing to me. So that's mm-hmm. the start of this project is to use gene editing tools. For example, the most popular one right now is CRISPR-Cas9-based zygote editing. So we directly deliver the CRISPR-Cas9 system inside the zygote so that they can disable from the start to make the mouse host doesn't generate the particular organs or tissues. By using this and combined with the red proponent stem cells, we were able to generate a pancreas, embryonic heart, as well as the eye structures inside the mouse. Uh, again, this is just the enrichment of the red cells into the organs that a mouse couldn't generate. Right. So if I'm getting this idea is that you, you kind of wipe out the host zone organ and therefore the, the stem cells that you put in there, they can compensate and make up most of that organ, right? And I think yes. what this is really tapping into the what the media and I think a lot of scientists the world over are really excited about, I think the notion 
which is controversial, also very you know mind blowing and has great promise for regenerative medicine of generating whole organs in a non-human host. Okay, so maybe this is a time that we can get into the meat of this, why everyone's going crazy, which we could talk about for an hour, but a pig and a human. Huge evolutionary distance there to begin with. You know, I would think more than a rat and a mouse, but we can get to that later. But the idea that we're getting at here is that we can grow organs in a pig. Is that right? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, It's whether we can move the same strategy from the rat and mice, which is a closely related species, into a more distant species between human and pig, as, uh, with the goal that whether we can generate the functional organs and tissues using donor stem cells like coming from your skin and hair follicles. And that's the ultimate goal and then the idea behind this project. But first, we need to know whether any type of human stem cells can contribute to the pig, which is separating evolution about 95 million years ago? I think that's the first question. So if the human cells doesn't go there, then there's no possibility for this to happen. Maybe there is a barrier that we cannot cross because the evolutionary diverge process between these two species, or maybe their technology is not there. We need to wait for better stem cells to be generated or a different stem cell to be generated to be used in this purpose. So that's another major goal of this study is to basically look at it in an biased way to generate the different type of human stem cells to check which type of human stem cells can contribute to the early development and survive enough to generate the early precursors of different tissues and lineages. And the answer is yes. In this study, we observed some of the chimerism using certain type of human donor human stem cells, but not the other type. So we think that this is possible, at least within the three to four weeks period of experiment that we're aiming at, and it opened the door for many, many different possibilities in the future. But again, it also raised several challenges that we have to overcome, especially technical, scientific, as well as the ethical challenges, which probably we're going to talk about. Yeah. So in terms of the percentage of success between the rat-mouse not implantation, chimerism of organs that were actually mostly whatever was the stem cell type that was put in. What was the success rate there? What was the difference in the success rate in the pigs? And you mentioned different types of human stem cells that we are using. Why do you think different types of stem cells have different results? Two questions. (laughs) Sure. Um, To answer the first one, with regard to the rat and mice, again, they are very close related species. They separated about 15 to 20 million years ago. Their gestation is only two days apart. And uh, even with this system, rat and mice, we don't see much of the rat contribution actually in the mice. We maximally see about 20 to 25% of the rat cells. Uh, we don't see over 40%, over 50%. So there's a barrier there. And if we see some of the higher contribution of the rat cell inside the mouse, uh, this is normally associated with uh, embryonic death or death right after birth. Uh, I think there's some incompatibility between these two species, even they are very closely related. But again, once those red cells find their way to survive and differentiate within a particular percentage, these red cells can survive for a long time and they are functional. So for example, in the oldest camera that we have about two years old, we observe up to 10% of the red contribution in the heart. But in other organs, such as uh, the liver, we observe about less than 1%, I think 0.1%. Although we did see there is a, uh, parts of 
cells are, are coming from the red, but sometimes they also cluster together, not intermingle with other uh, mass cells. So this suggests that, yes, maybe there, there is a conservation between these two species, but also there is a divergent processes probably because they are evolved separately millions of years through evolution. Uh, with regard to human and pig, we actually observe a much less contribution of the human cells. Even in our best case, uh, we observe less than, uh, although we didn't quantify because of the number of embryos that we had in hand at the time, we estimated about one human cells in about 100,000 pig cells in between three to four weeks old pig. But even with that little amount, that the pig embryo about four weeks old is similar in size as a newborn mice. You can imagine that actually a lot of human cells there, it's just the percentage-wise is not that much. That suggests to us that maybe the evolutionary distance is one of the factors that are making up this species barrier. And uh, how to lower the barrier, how to make the human cells contributing more to the pig development without affecting the normal development of the pig is still a big challenge ahead, and we need to overcome that. And then you mentioned that there was potentially that you used one type of human stem cell and that a different type might make a difference. Could you comment on that? Exactly. I think uh, that's one of the reasons we started this project is because the past five or six years also, we have gaining a better understanding of proponent stem cells. The proponent stem cells, before people obviously believe we capture the one singular property of embryonic potentials in culture. For example, the mouse ESLs when they first arrived in 1981, we always thought that uh, maybe this is the only type of cells that we can culture. Until later on in 2007, uh, there's two groups independently uh, published a result showing there's a, another proponent stem cell type which can be isolated from post-implantation embryos. We call it the epiblast stem cells. And this opened up the field a little bit as a developmental biologist we know that in the early development, the embryonic cells exist four to five days in the mouse. They have this potential for potency. They can generate all the tissue and organs in the body. And this potential become more restricted during embryonic development. At the earlier stages, they have, we call it unrestricted potential, but this potential become less and less when they reach to another stage of the development gastrulation stage. So these cells, this different type of proponent stem cells potentially represent a different timing during development. So uh, we call it the naive cells a little bit earlier in development and the prime cells, which is prime for differentiation, uh, is a little bit later uh, in development. So with this concept, we try to generate a human proponent stem cell that potentially representing different timing during human embryo genesis as well. And we try to match the timing of the donor cell to the host in hope that some of the donor cells based on proper timing can enter into the host development uh, with less resistance from the host cells or less competition. So that's exactly what we did. We generated three type of human proponent stem cells representing potentially three different timing development and we inject them one by one to the pig, early pig embryos. We found that the later stage, we call it the prime state proponent stem cell doesn't contribute into the pig much at all. Actually, we didn't see much of the contribution. But earlier type of human proponent stem cell, for example, we call it naive and intermediate proponent stem cell. They have this ability to robustly engraft into the pre-implantation pig embryos. And some of the cells even survive and persist in the post-implantation 
and then survive up to three to four weeks in this experiment, then they can generate early early cells of the tissue structures. Why did you choose the pig? What was the rationale there? So the reason we chose the pig is because pig is very similar to humans in terms of physiology, organ size, and even gestation length, much more similar than mouse and human. And for example, human has about 280 days um, average in gestation length, and the pig has about 112 to 114 days. Although it's not exactly the same, it's much more similar than 19 days compared to the mouse and human. And organ size is, a, is an important factor because in the end, the ultimate goal is to generate the organ that can be transplantable to humans. And the organ size is very critical in that matter. And actually, in parallel, many of the researchers are trying to use pig organs directly in the field called xenotransplantation and to genetically modify the pig so that they are more immune compatible with the whole human and to directly use their organ for transplantation. But there's many challenges over there as well, resulting in the immune and also the risk of spreading some of the rich endogenous ritual viruses. But with the gene editing tools, I think we're making a lot of progress in that area as well. So eventually, I think the goal is to hopefully in the future, we can merge these two technologies together by basically can generate a humanized pig, which is more immune compatible with the humans, and then enrich the pig organ with the human cells. So with these two strategies, we may minimize the immune rejections to the very minimal, and hopefully with the help of immune-suppressing drugs, and these can become a reality in the future. Yeah. But for now, I think all these approaches are complementing each other. They are showing very promising results. Yeah, you also did some work uh, using the cow as well with some cow chimeras. Is the main reason that the cow is not optimal? Is it because gestation period is more similar to humans, but the organs are going to be much bigger. Is, is that kind of the consideration there? Yes, that's one of the considerations. And the other one, we decide not to perform the embryo transfer in the cow is because there's a very limited number of embryos that we can work with the cow. With the pig, we transfer about 30 to 50 embryos per host, host mother, but with the cow, only a, a few. At this stage, I think we are trying to gather more information. We want to test different parameters. So I think a pig is ideal. But we did see, uh, actually, there is a better compatibility between the human cells and the cow. So when we inject the human stem cells into the early cow embryos, we see more proliferation of the human cells inside the cow processes as early embryos of the cow. But due to other reasons, we, we didn't proceed with the cow experiment. What about using an alternative source of pluripotent cells? I mean, just to, for less of a headache. I'm all for it, man. Don't get me wrong. Be bold. Get out there with the human. But I can imagine there may have been some forces, committees that were saying, hey, why don't we try this with a non-human primate first? Was there, you just wanted to get after it, I'm sure. But was there any voices saying that maybe you should be more cautious or go with something that was uh, maybe less evolutionary distance? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, that's actually one of the uh, the grant we received or award we received from NIH last year because uh, we proposed first uh, two years ago about using human cells in the pig. At that time, the the regulation was not clear whether we can deliver human cells in the pig early embryos. But because of uh, our application as a pioneer award uh, that Juan Carlos received last year, the NIH 
put a basically a temporary ban on this type of research. But later conversation leads to the idea whether we can use a non-human primate species, for example, the monkey stem cells, to at least to gather some of the information how the primate cells can interact with the early angular species like the pig embryos so that those information can be useful for later on with the human cells. And for that reason, we received the grant. So we are also working on the different type of monkey stem cell. The advantage of this monkey stem cell is that we can have a range of different type of stem cell for different type of monkeys. For example, uh, the marmoset, a rhesus monkey, and RPS cells from chimpanzee, bonobo, exactly representing different evolutionary distance mm -hmm. and also different body size and gestation period. So those information, if we can use pig as a host, and we can gather some of the additional information that we don't know with the human cells. But again, this study, we choose to use stem cells from human because we have a, some of the funding from private sources, and we want to answer the first question of whether any of human cells can go there, and we answer that. But uh, I think with that information and with all these challenges ahead, I think it's reasonable to work with the non-human primate cells. Can you talk a little bit about the regulations that have been kind of blocking this research moving forward? I know from reporting on chimeric research for years, basically there's been almost nothing to read. There's been conversations about the ethical issues, but what was it that initialized the regulations so that NIH wasn't putting funding towards it? We were blocking the chimera research with human cells. And now what has opened up the ability for you to do this research? What changed? Yes, I think previously people have this similar concern. Many of our researchers are actually trying to use human stem cells in the mouse uh, host. And basically they want to know whether these human stem cells are truly proponent because uh, one of the tests for the ability of proponency is the ability of the stem cells to generate all the tissues and cells in, in an invisible setting rather than in a classic coffee dish. And previously, mostly people use mouse as a host for many of the biological research, and it's logical that people use mouse for the studies. But there's a limitation there uh, for the reasons that I mentioned, gestation period, evolution the distance. Unfortunately, the human cell doesn't integrate that much. I mean, there is some integration, but it's very limited. And so that didn't bring a kind of a warning sign uh, to, to the ethical committee because basically the potential of the human cells are limited in this particular experimental setting. But with a better understanding of human stem cells, especially the arrival of we call it the naive human proponent stem cells, what it means naive is that naive cells supposedly have this ability to generate the chimeras. And this has been uh, mostly used in the uh, mouse and rat. So the first arrival of naive human stem cell kind of raised that concern. And whether these type of human cells has ability to generate more extensive chimerism in a mouse or in a different species. And actually people in the past few years, I think one group in Israel, one group in MIT, they attempted using the naive human stem cell in the mouse, but their result is a little bit there's not very conclusive, basically, uh, with one group saying they see some of the human cells there, the other group saying, no, uh, the very limited contribution there, we don't think is real. Then that's the time we started to think that maybe we should choose a more compatible species, such as a pig. And we're, we're because we're in California, so the policy, I guess, is a little bit 
more relaxed. So we talked to the ethical committee. Well, it turned out that it's very uh, generous a lot of concerns initially because this experiment is very new and no one has been attempting this before. And we had to work with the ethical committees back and forth, I think over one year, basically to, gen- to uh, develop a step-by-step approach. We all agree on we need to stop very early in development at this stage because the purpose is to gather information rather than we are with a particular goal for the organ generation. And that's exactly what we did. We choose the four weeks as a maximum to let the embryo to be carried into gestation. And also in Spain, we work with ethical committee there to have a similar approval from them, but we are more flexible in that term. And we can go up to birth in Spain. But again, we choose not to because the same reason. We don't want to go further without knowing more information at the earlier developmental stages, because you know there is a lot of other issues, ethical and also scientific issues and technical even that we need to understand better to move forward. I'm sure uh, Juan Carlos shields you from most of the harsh rhetoric and allows you to focus on your work. I mean, you're my personal hero, but I'm sure that there's <laughs> a lot of people out there that are hating. Have you felt any of that? Personally, I mean, do you get any like troll emails? Like, you know, is there a negative reaction that you felt personally, or do you think it's mostly Juan Carlos suffering through that and all his email trash filter? So sometimes uh, he sends he forward some of the emails to me, and I I did have a look at them, and I think to me it's a uh, very reasonable, and it's very natural. The reason for that, I think, for any areas of research in science, if it's an unknown, we generate two things. One is curiosity and excitement. The other is fear. I think it happens in any field, especially this field, is because we're entering into areas of research basically uncharted, unknown. And uh, I think it's important that we communicate with the public. I know not everyone's going to agree with us and not everyone's going to go against us, but I think it's important to generate the conversation, to let people start talking, and to let the society decide in the end what should be done, what not cannot be done. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to know, because I'm so curious. Can you share with us some of the concrete fears? What are people really afraid of when they're thinking about this? When you get the personal communications or you're there forward to you, what are the scenarios that I guess people talk about? Would you mind? I think most concern is whether we scientists are going to generate the sentient chimeric animal that has a brain cell contributed from the human cells mm-hmm. so the, the pig can gain consciousness. Yeah. And then we have to deal with the rights of this chimera. I think it's that's part of the humanity that they don't want to see inside a pig. <laughs> and also another concern is that the germline, I think they don't, uh, the society is afraid of we're going to generate the chimera embryo, carry human sperm and egg. But I think those concerns are not the concern at this stage. Of course, it will become a concern Later on, if they let, let the embryo go a little bit further in development and even let them be born. But at this stage, I think we can develop a strategy to prevent that from happening. We can implement a safety switch in the donor stem cells so that we can avoid the human stem cell from contributing to the brain and contributing to the germline. Mm-hmm. Even in the future, even the technology can reach there that we can generate the live chimera uh, containing human cells in a particular organ. In some of the scenarios, I think we don't actually need the chimera to be born. And the reason for that is for some tissues, for example, the pancreas, uh, we don't necessarily need an entire organ. 
probably the beta cells and eyelids and is isolated from fetal stages are better for transplantation than the entire organ from the adult chimeras. So those are the things that are, I think, will become, we'll gather more information and we'll develop better strategy to avoid this ethical concern that coming from the people. But that's why it's important to stop at early stages at this point and to understand a better about this process before we do anything further. Yeah, and I think it's very similar to like the side of how researchers are currently using CRISPR to investigate the early stages of development in human embryonic development, embryogenesis. It's like you're going to use CRISPR, genetically modify human genome, but then stop the development of that embryo at a very early stage. You don't let it go forward. So right now, the conversation is not necessarily an ethical one, but it is starting the ethical conversation for what we're going to do in the future and where we're going to go. Exactly. I mean, people don't even want to think about pigs as being conscious already. I'm, I come from a neuroscience and animal behavior <laughs> background. Pigs may very well be conscious. <laughs> Who cares if it's a human consciousness? <laughs> well, you know, let's put aside, though, the human questions in terms of regulatory apparatus for a second. What about, like, boutique species? What, what's to stop people from making chimeras of two species and then, you know, unleashing them, letting them loose into the wild? I know that's a scenario some people talk about. Where do you come down on that personally, if you don't mind me sharing? Do you think that's irresponsible? Or do you think that, you know, that that's... Because people are probably doing that right now, right? Is, is I want a, a bunny to... mouse. I want a bunny <laughs> mouse. <laughs> but... Certainly, I have to say, um, I'm sorry, but the bunny mouse is not going to be happening. Ah. Uh, <laughs> the reason for that, we still don't quite understand how to culture the stem cell from the rabbit, actually, mm. if believe it or not. And even after 30 years of research, uh, the only successful cases is between rodents. So we can generate a live camera between rat and mice live camera between wood mice and mice. But other than rodents, well, so far, not, not so much success. Although in the earlier days, people mixed goat and sheep uh, in the 1984, but not using the stem cell, they are making early embryonic cells. But the evolutionary distance are much closer. So with that concern, I, as a scientist, I think it's, uh, we should be responsible and we should be the voice. This type of research, even as cameras between two species, are created only to answer a specific question or to gather information, but rather for fun or for some other purposes. I think we need to have certain rules or regulation in place to prevent that from happening. I think the intercities camera is a very valuable platform. It's because to me, it's a only existing live evolutionary system that you can use today. So, if you want to study evolution between a mouse and man, what you do normally is to use, you get the DNA information, you get the protein information, you compare between these two species. But this system actually gives you a live system to understand whether there is a preserved or whether there's divergent evolutionary differences between these two species. For example, one data I think is very exciting to me uh, is the rat doesn't have a gallbladder uh, for evolution reasons. They don't need a concentrated bile for their physiology and a, a normal lifestyle. But in the mouse, they have a gallbladder. So this suggests to us that maybe during evolution, the mouse and rat diverge enough so that they choose a different path in terms of gallbladder development. 
But when, when we inject the red stem cells inside the mouse, the red stem cell can actually contribute to the gallbladder development in the mouse. Mm. To me, that is fascinating because that tells us that the inability of the red cells to generate the gallbladder is not intrinsic. It's actually coming from the environment, the regulations, that the red development evolved in a way that suppressed the red cells from going there. That's the environmental or food choices or other things that changed their past yeah. during the revolution. Yeah. So in where what you're looking at, are you interested in looking at the epigenetic controls, mRNA coming in, transfer RNA? I mean, there's so many yes. little bits and pieces that control the expression of genes. Is that? Yes. Like I said, the system is very exciting because everything we do, everything we learn from this system will be new. Uh, the reason why is, is a complete uncharted theory. When you look at the gene expression, for example, you look at the gene expression of the red cells inside the mouse environment, same age, you compare it with the mouse cells together inside the same environment, and you compare it the cells that are in the red environment and in the mouse environment. That alone, I think, can give us some information, you know, whether environmental, whether environmental processes can have some imprints on the cell identity. Again, there are many, many other things we can study. We can basically draw a map of at least between the mouse and rat, where which lineages, which organs, the tissues the rat cells can contribute, and which tissues they don't contribute. So those information, you know, when we look back, and we can compare with the other evolutionary studies to see, okay, this is the tissue the rat and mouse are conserved, but the other ones are not, and why they are not. Then we can go back and using molecular tools to understand this process a little bit better. So to me, it's an exciting research tool, but whether these tools should be utilized or for a creation of a particular species that suits our human needs. I don't, I, you know, whether I put it in the right term or not, I'm not sure, but I think there's, there should be, a, just like the human study, there should be a regulation even on any interspecies chimeras and what purpose we should use them rather than, you know, we just generate them and, and without any purpose. So speaking of that, and you alluded to it earlier and getting back to the meat of this, which has everybody going crazy, so you said over there in Spain, you got uh, regulatory approval to go to birth. Is that what goes on now? Tell me the truth. Do you have such chimeras cooking longer than four weeks over there in Barcelona? What's going on, Junwu? I can tell you that we don't have any chimeras go beyond the 28th. Because the reason I just mentioned mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense at this stage. Because the cell contribution of the human is, is too little to be practical. And, and you want to let it go of six weeks or eight weeks, what we're going to say is that there's much lesser, lesser human cells going to be there. It's more difficult to find them. So with the early stages, we need to understand how we can improve the chimeras of human cells and how we can target the human cells uh, into a specific tissue uh, rather than go along, you know, and then we, uh, basically we're going to lose all, I think, we're going to lose all the human cells mm-hmm. with this percentage of the human cells inside the pig chimeras. So, so does there's that no mean, point. For does that mean you're in the you're doing the uh, the primate in pig now, kind of like fleshing out how to increase the contribution? Or are you going more to your ablative complementation mouse rat type studies? Where is the next step? We hope that with the gene editing in the pig to empty the developed niche, we can enrich the human cells in the specific organs, even though the overall contribution is low. So that's the ideal case. But we also know that this may be difficult because the lesser the human cells there, the less possibility of the human cells to go to uh, uh, organs or lineages. We're doing both. We're 
performing gene editing in the pig, we also are trying to develop better culture conditions for the human cells or for the monkey stem cells so they can have a better chimerism in the early pig embryos. The next goal would be to see the human cell enriched in the primordial organs, for example, the progenitor in the pancreas at early stages. Mm-hmm. And so that we know this can work before we go, you know, extend the time a little bit and to see whether we can generate the later stage of the same tissue and so that we can analyze functional properties of those generated tissues. On the ethical front, globally, you know, the United States has its own regulations on how far you can go. And you're, of course, working with the ethics board at your university to determine the extent of your experimentation. Spain has its own regulations. Italy's going to have its own. China's going to have its own. Is there a scientific body coming together to start to discuss the issue of chimerism and the state of the research and where the research will be allowed? I think right now uh, the regulation is not that clear to me, at, at least in, in some of the countries. And I think it's important to organize a sort of consortium or a community uh, that not only provide the researchers the, the technology, the science, as well as ethically across country borders. At this stage, though, I think the most of the challenge is the technical, although the ethical is challenge is always there. So I think it's the worry is that the lab is going to randomly, you know, in different countries and generate different cameras is not going to happen, at least with the human cells. But in the future, I think before we see more chimerism of human cells in the pig, I think this type of consortium or community should be established. As a scientist, we like to you know, start organizing or help organizing and bringing ethics, bioethicists, bring many, even the policymakers to help make the judgment and uh, decisions on policies. Uh, well, what we I can, can provide is a technical yeah. advice. I can tell you it, it's happening on a case-by-case. Within a couple days of your paper being published, the advanced copy online, my institute put out a notice that they were revising the escrow and the IACUC guidelines. So I think you've planted the seed, Dr. Wu. This is a discussion that's now going to be had because we can't wait any longer. I don't think anyone saw it happening so soon, but clearly you've, you've really pushed the envelope here. Yeah. And I think also, like you said, technically, the methodology of your own research can serve as guideline or a guidepost for other researchers to approach their own studies in this direction at their own institutions and also working with their own IACUC boards. Yes. We hope that our this first set of results or the way we perform this experiment can help set up appropriate of guidelines and for other researchers to follow. Basically, uh, again, I'd like to reiterate, I think it's important at this stage to stop earlier, three to weeks, to understand better before we move on to do anything that is out of our control. So I think also this period of time will help us have a appropriate guidelines to set up for any researchers that I can uh, want to enter into this area's research. I think it's exciting. At the same time, it has the potential to save people's lives. I think if we go into that type of research with this goal, we always can find ways to make it step by step rather than go uncontrolled way. So Yeah. It's nice and slow and controlled, thoughtful. <laughs> hey, last questions, but I have one more question on a personal. Do you have a favorite X Men character? <laughs> oh the Wolverine, of course. Yeah. Of I think course. Favorite. I love <laughs> That's Wolverine. Everybody's favorite. <laughs> 
I'm so excited for the new movie coming out. Ah. I don't know what you got to <laughs> combine to get that guy. I mean, clearly he's beyond Chimera, but I mean, maybe in the distant future we can work on that. Bring him to life. What is that? CRISPR with the adamantine. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you need some little space technology out yeah. of a CRISPR, a little chimerism peppered on top. It's yeah. just... To me, I think the most important thing is not what you can do is is very hard is that I think it's, uh, that's important. Right. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you so much for spending this lengthy interview with us. We really appreciate your time and getting to speak with you about your research. It's just been fabulous. And we wish you the best of luck and the best of unearthing of the secrets of embryogenesis. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. All right, that was Dr. Wu talking to us about pig-human chimeras. We went real long on that because it was real fascinating, and he had all the answers to the questions that we've had from our audience and that have been stewing in my mind. Kiki, what do you think about that interview? I loved it. I thought it was really wonderful. I mean, the way he broke it down, basically saying the technology, the techniques are not there yet to really do the things that people are afraid of, so don't worry don't worry, don't be afraid. And he said, it's time to start having those conversations. So scientists around the world, get your talk on, start talking with the bioethicists if you're not already doing it. Talk to your institution, make it happen. I think he did a really good job of balancing the concerns and fears with the actual research that he's doing, which is groundbreaking. Yes. And I thought sounded a cautionary no, not cautionary per se, but he was he's a responsible guy. I'm always impressed by scientists who take their time. We've learned that, you know, rushing into the new science can be terrible, have an outcome that can cast a shadow on the field for decades. So I really appreciated that he was saying, take our time, take our time. There's no reason to go past four weeks. Let's improve the technology. Let's not do it just for, you know, the goof to see, to say Let's do something with a strong rationale and some fundamental premise that's going to move the science forward. So I got to say, I have a lot of respect for uh, Dr. Wu and, of course, for Dr. Is Pessua Belmonte, my man from Spain. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Doing some amazing work, and I'm sure we're going to hear much more in the months and years to come about this stuff now that the gears are in motion much more than they much more than they have been for the past decade really all right everybody uh, it's time for our stem cell podcast rant this is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you dalen what are we ranting about today oh kiki i shouldn't complain because i'm about to go on a, on a nice trip <laughs> to the like the tropics i guess you call it although no zika over there i'm so psyched no mosquitoes in hawaii can you believe it how is that even possible i don't know maybe there are but they're negligible you don't even notice them because it's paradise and you're too busy riding the dolphins yeah. but i have to say because you're making me be angry about something i'm angry <laughs> at you all right, all you schleps who are back here, not in Hawaii with me, because you're going to be treated to a beautiful, balmy, unseasonably mild week. I'll tell you why, because every single time I go on vacation in the winter, I leave behind sunny days. I, everybody's getting a tan while I'm like fighting, you know, seasickness on a cruise or I'm getting, you know, heat stroke 
under a palm tree somewhere. People are bugging out in the sun in Central Park in the middle of winter. What's up with that? Is it me? Is do I have bad luck? <laughs> no, or not. is it just it happens to me every time too. It is like, you know, raining, cold, freezing for months on an on end, and I plan a vacation and the week that I go away. The sky's clear at home and it's like, okay, I'm going to a beautiful place. But what the place where I live is now beautiful. I was good, trying to get away from the misery and oh, timing. You know, what's worse about this now that I'm talking about, it, I'm just hating myself because why am I so preoccupied with what everyone back home is doing? I can't even enjoy, enjoy my vacation. I'm like stuck looking at the weather channel. What's wrong with me? All right, you know, Mr. Weather. Can you not play a trick on me? Can we get like a, a blizzard in the Northeast, some, some lake effects snow? Do something that makes me feel good about not being here. As long as you're able to leave. As long as you're able, the blizzard doesn't hit before your plane leaves for Hawaii. Yeah, okay, yes. That, that would be just the thing, you know. Be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, and take care of yourself because, you know, you don't want to be sick in paradise. So oh, no, wash you're your jinxing hands. me. Oh, Make sure you have that. Drink plenty of fluids. Chicken I got soup, two young kids. <laughs> two young kids, so it goes without saying that there will be some sickness, but oh, yeah. I'm going to make the best of it. I'll be, you know, you don't, you don't get bad weather in Hawaii. That's the one thing I can count on is that okay. there will not be a cloud in the sky. So I am very, very thrilled. It'll be Hawaii. Yeah, just wave at me as you fly over. Say, see you later, Kiki. As you leave the West Coast behind. Yeah, <laughs> wishing for uh, heavy rain as I go by. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, it's going to be raining the whole time. I live in Portland. It's just rain here. So, okay, everyone, be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, this concludes episode 86 of the Stem Cell Podcast. What a fabulous interview. Dr. Jun Wu, like we said, doing some great work with Juan Carlos Ispizua Belmonte over at the Salk Institute. Everyone, be sure to tune in for our next episode. That'll be in a few weeks, a couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to be delivering you the latest papers. The Roundup will be back along with a great interview. And Dalen, I hope you have a great vacation, but I'm looking forward to our next episode. Aloha. Aloha. 